Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Stephen Keady who is 38 and lives in Manchester with his wife Gemma and their two sons Joel and Nate and Stephen works in business continuity in the finance sector and I hope right away that I've pronounced Stephen's surname correctly. Uh, Stephen's the author of a novel, Suburb, which is about that time in your life when you're not a kid anymore but not quite an adult yet either. And it's set just before his travelling adventure starts, Suburb tells the story of Tom Frey, who returns to Manchester following three years at university and feels like nothing has changed but him. Trapped and desperate to escape, Tom finds himself in a friendship with a married neighbour, Kate, that leads Tom to make unexpected decisions about his life. And Stephen's latest novel, Running and Jumping, is the story of an Olympic rivalry that tries to answer the question, what if you had your greatest ever day and still didn't win? The novel looks at rivalry, sacrifice and dedication to be the best, along with the impact of elite level sport on those competing and the people closest to them. Stephen actually wrote the last words of the final draft this week as we're recording the podcast and is now preparing himself for the great agent and publisher search that follows the typing of the final full stop. So good luck with with that search. It's, It's a search that many of us have been on or continue to be on. And we're not in the current government enforced lockdown. Stephen spends his time running, reading, writing and hoping the glory days of Manchester United are not a thing of the past. And I think we might be talking about that in the course of the podcast. And along with a friend of his, Stephen is also in the process of starting a music website called Eight Albums that asks people to talk about eight albums that are important to them and why. Stephen, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much. I'm actually going to start by thanking you because... One of the previous podcast guests, Alison McConnell, uh, she'd been talking about Don Winslow. And I think after you had listened to that podcast, you'd made, you'd put a tweet out about Don Winslow, mentioning the podcast, mentioning Don Winslow. And Don Winslow not only liked the tweet, but he then started following the Read All About It podcast Twitter feed. So certainly Alison and I were completely thrilled by it. So if Don Winslow's watching, uh, we want, want you on as a guest, Don, but that's all down to you, Stephen. Oh well, uh, hopefully, hopefully he'll pick up on that. I'm sure he's going to get mentioned again a little bit later on in this, anyway. So, um, he's a, a wonderful writer, Don. Absolutely, and uh, it's amazing just that that kind of then interconnected world of Twitter that somebody like Don Winslow, he's v- very high profile just now in terms of the the politics of the United States as well. But uh, a brilliant writer, you know, just by that one tweet that he obviously reads it and then connects with it as well, which is great as readers of his book. Yeah, I think. Twitter's great for that, isn't it? I know Ian Rankin's quite quite good at that as well. And for other writers, there's a, it it makes it really easy for one for readers to access the writers directly, and then also for writers to access uh, readers directly. And I think particularly in this time where people can't get out to you know bookshops or book festivals and and do readings, it it's a great tool for that sort of thing. I, I made a joke once, which there's not, it's not there's a little bit of truth in it, which is when I grow up, I want to be Don Winslow. I think not just from a writing perspective, but his his outlook on life and and the way he is, you know, particularly at the moment in America, you know, he's got a brave voice and a strong voice and one that I think we could all really learn from. So yeah, he's a, he's a good man and a good writer. 
And I suppose as a writer as well, there's always certain authors that you admire, but you also aspire to to get to that level of not not even success, but just quality of writing more than anything else. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He is someone that you know, I, I don't write crime, but when when I read his books, the the use of language, the, the as a, one example, one of his books opens with a, a chapter which is just two words, and it it's so sparse, but it's so the writing's so strong. He moves books along at such a quick pace. And yet he's got an ability to tell real stories about what's going on. Particularly, uh, there's, a, there's a book that we'll talk about later, which is part of a trilogy that he he tells the story of, of what's going on in one America and then two the world at the moment in a way that I haven't seen another writer do. As you say, we'll, we'll, we'll be discussing him later on the podcast. And it's also, I think, just obviously we're recording this via Skype. And again, just in terms of social media, it's how you and I have ended up connecting that you, you'd started listening to the podcast and said a lot of good things about it. And so we've kind of started conversing through Twitter. And, and lo and behold, we're now, we're now chatting about your literary journey. Yeah, it's great. It's great, isn't it? I think that social media can get a really bad reputation. And quite rightly, in some for some parts of it, it you know, there's some horrendous stuff out there. And it's probably had quite a negative effect on the world as well, but the little connections that you can make and the little friendships that you can make, you know, did a great part of it. So it can really, again, particularly in these times, can really help people. So, And also making history as the first Manchester United fan on the podcast as well. well I also wonder, am I the first non-Scottish person on it as well? Are you taking us international now? Is that what it is? I, I think that's what it is, yeah. I'm, expand, I'm expanding the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, run of, I've run out of friends. <laughs> so you've gone to Twitter and you've ended up with uh, a Manchester United fan. Well, there you go. You know. That's right. And, and uh, as I say, I think we'll, we'll be chatting some football in the course of the podcast, and probably not before too long. Because if I take you back in terms of your your literary life and go back to your first of, of the choices for the podcast, and that's your your favourite book from childhood, and it does have a football theme to it. It does. So when I was thinking about these questions, that this is the first book that came to mind, and it's it's Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby. From a childhood perspective, I didn't read until I was 14, as often you do in these situations. Uh, I rang my mother for some uh, for some conversation and advice and said, are there any books that I'm not thinking of because I can't think of anything before Fever Pitch? And she said, and her words were, I could not pay you to read. She said that it was difficult to get me to read the work that school set. I wasn't interested in books. They, you know, they, they bought me books and I just never read them. I wasn't bothered. I'd rather be outside kicking a ball around or on my bike, etc. But... Wet fever pitch. I actually remember the time that I was I was given the book. So I must be. I think it was thirteen or fourteen, and it was at a friend's house, and it was in his bedroom, and we were loading up the new Championship Manager football game, and it, the book came free with the computer game. And I remember he tore the sort of wrapping off the game, and he handed me the book, and he said, "I've got no use for that. You might as well." Have. And oh. as the game was loading up, I just sat there and read the opening bit. I assume you've read the book. Yeah. I don't yeah. remember the opening bit. The opening bit is him sat in bed with his his wife at the time, and she asks him what he's thinking about, and he talks about the three stages of lying, as he because he's actually <laughs> thinking about the fact that he's seen his friend, and his friend's got his Arsenal video, and then he wonders what his friend thinks of Anders Limpar, <laughs> and then he obviously says, you know, he, he then has to lie and as obsessives do, and say that he's thinking about Bill Clinton or you know something he read <laughs> in the Guardian, and it just hit me like a arrow through the heart if you like of this is what reading can be it can be about things that you love and it can take you into the world of things that you love and it it just completely changed my life really interestingly that is the same bedroom that i heard live forever 
by Oasis for the first time. That, from a musical perspective, also changed my life because it sent me on a different journey about the music that I listened to, uh, but which is probably a different podcast for a different day, really. But um, the book, I've reread bits of it this week. I've read it two or three times, but I've reread bits of it this week, and it still stands up. You know, you just dip into bits, and those feelings just come back about his writing and, and the way he is as a, as a football fan. And it just immediately makes me feel the same. And that, as a as a kid reading, it just made me realise that, you know, books can be enjoyed. And that, that was a gift that keeps on giving, really. I've spoken to a few people who are slightly older than me that have read it, who said that they read it probably about the same age that he was when he wrote it. And they felt like it told them that it was all right to be the type of football fan they had been and that it made them realise that they weren't the only ones that felt like that and that it you know, provided them with, uh, with the knowledge that other people were as obsessive as they were and that wasn't a strange thing. But I think for me, what it did is it gave me permission to be a football fan like that and mm-hmm. it, it gave me permission to be a football fan that wanted to read and wanted to write, you know, because Hornby in the book talks about his desire to write a lot it really, it really, like, it really changed my life. That book, even reading it about an Arsenal fan, you sort of go, "Oh, okay." So he feels like that about Arsenal, and I feel like that about United, and that's all right. Because, because I was wondering, because obviously the fact that it was football was was the heart of the book would have obviously resonated with you as a, as a football fan. But also, I think it because it was the first in a kind of a whole kind of genre of football books that, as you say, spoke about football in a different way. It wasn't your kind of normal just football autobiographies. It was, from a fan's perspective, intelligent, saying that, you know, there is a there's some depth behind this passion for the sport. And it kind of, also, it was that kind of early 90s, you know, things were changing in terms of how football was being perceived as well in the country. Yeah, and I think he probably helped that because it wasn't, I'm just looking at the book now as we, as we speak, and it, I think it originally came out in 92, so I would have been 10. But I think I got it about 95 or 96 so it obviously I would have been sort of 13 or 14 and it obviously starting to get things like fantasy football and yeah you know the euros were coming to england and the premier league had started but it it just it just felt like it was different because it wasn't a hooligan book which there were lots of around that time it wasn't another player's autobiography that didn't really tell you a lot and obviously you know since then I've gone back and read some of those those players books from that time and and read all the football books from around that period and earlier it it just had this voice that sort of said it's all right to feel like this and I think that that theme throughout it of it didn't really matter that it was about football there may be an equivalent basketball book or you know baseball book or what cricket book or whatever you know even somebody that's into tiddlywinks you know if they feel like that about what they are passionate about, he just gave permission for that to be okay. And then coupled with the fact that it then showed me that there were people out there writing things that I would enjoy, that completely changed how I felt about books. That was what I was quite interested in, given the fact that that was effectively the book that kind of started you on your reading journey. When you finished that book, were you immediately then just looking for something else to read? or what, what? Do you remember what the next book you read was? I don't remember what the next book was, but I know that the, the descent into reading, if you like, the, the, the journey okay. into... A set, well, yeah, I suppose it depends on whether you talk about all the money I've spent on books over the years. It might be a descent into this reading. But yeah, the, the journey into reading was very quick. It was like... That you know the first taste of a drug that you know the habit still goes today, in a positive sense. 
I remember every holiday after that, I always had at least one book on me. Um, I remember traveling. We did a, a fly drive holiday in America when I was 17. And I had sort of seven or eight books with me at that point, which for a, a holiday then was was unheard of, you know, in previous to reading Fever Pitch. Um, I actually started, although I never finished, an English literature A-level. I've always found, we actually spoke about this about 10 minutes before we started recording because my son was asking me about what we obviously what we're about to do and stuff and saying about reading and i could never get on board with reading books for the sake of then discussing them and writing essays about them and so i started an english literature a level which i never finished whereas my wife is the other way she she would rather read books and and then discuss them for days and and uh, you know write about them and go through them several times whereas i just love the joy of it i just love the, the pleasure that that reading gives but I don't, so I don't know, to answer your question, I don't remember the next book that I read, but I know that very quickly I was a reader following that. There's probably always been a book on the go since I turned the last page of Fever Pitch. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, you were also, you got in touch with me after Crystal and I did a, a podcast on books with a music theme, and you'd, you'd give me some of the books, and one of them was the, the Nick Hornby book, High Fidelity. So I take it from Fever Pitch onwards, you've, you're a, a big Nick Hornby fan. Yes, I am. Yeah, I've read. I think I've read everything he's done apart from that he did a young adult novel. I think it's called Slam, which I haven't read. But I absolutely loved High Fidelity. I loved About a Boy, um, and I've recently. It's the first book that my wife and I have read where we've both read the same book. Uh, this year we both read Funny Girl, which I think came out about four or five years ago, which is his book about a woman from Blackpool in the sixties who goes on to be a sitcom star, and it's sort of all about that that 60s um, sitcom environment and I thought it was absolutely brilliant I just think he's a great he's a great writer absolutely great writer so yeah I've read everything that he's done probably always buy his books as a bit of a as a thank you for for giving the world Fever Pitch really yeah absolutely I mean the other curious thing obviously you mentioned earlier on that Fever Pitch is about Arsenal but I, I think you know having read it as well as a Celtic fan, I think it resonates with football fans. But one of the books, one of the music books that you had selected, and again, you, re- you mentioned the fact that obviously Oasis is a, is a big part of your musical life. And you mentioned a book called Forever the People, Paulo Hewitt. It was six months on the road with Oasis. But I was just curious, and I know up here that if if you maybe liked a, a musical act and you find out they support the team from the other side of the city, it kind of dilutes a bit your, your love of the, the artist. And I, I was wondering, obviously, as a big Manchester United fan and Oasis, great music. But obviously, big Manchester City fans. Did that ever play a part in, in your love well, of music? I suppose as a 13, 14 year old, it teaches you that the world's not black and white, is it? We can't <laughs> all get what we want. No, it doesn't dilute their music, although, you know, them being so synonymous with that club. Although I know this is the other way, because on uh, Thursday night, some of us had a, not to go off topic a little bit, but I'm in a, a group of people who we, were working our way through the thousand and one albums to hear before you die. And uh, there's a, a group of us on, on WhatsApp that do that. And we had a bit of a listening party to the Stone Roses album. And then we're just talking about it on the group. One of the guys on the group is a big Liverpool fan. And he says, although he loves that album and he loves the Roses, there is a, a part of a couple of the tracks that are tainted because they are such united tracks. <laughs> this is the one being being the prime example. But no, it didn't. It didn't dilute the band for me at all because they were um, they were just important in other ways. It never really linked to football. It was yeah. for me. It was always about the music and and the gigs and stuff that they that they did at that time. So no, they they were forgiven. Maybe it was because City weren't very good at that point. It might be a bit different now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Although interestingly, I think was it uh, Liam Gallagher's last video had Derek Cantona on it. It did, and that, there was a few of us discussing 
one, it was possibly the greatest 90s moment of all time, and it happened in 2020. Yeah. But also, that's how cool Eric is. Eric can do that, and he can get away with it because he is, you know, he is he's not just a man, he is Cantona. Excellent. Well, listen, we are going to move on now to uh, your second choice, and it's taking you on from Fever Pitch and to, to more formative or, or the next book that kind of had a big impact on you, and that was, was it The, the Beach by Alec Galland? This is just, it's just a great adventure story. For me, I, I read it around the time. I can't remember if I read it before I went travelling or after. I think it was probably just before. I was in my early 20s. I really wanted to get away and get out of living at home and go and see some of the world. And and this book just, it talks about, you know, that's the theme of it is, is escape and, uh, and looking for something else and looking for adventure. When I read it, I remember thinking, and I still think this now, if this is what they'd given us at school instead of Lord of the Flies, I would have been a lot happier. It's just a really great adventure story that every time I dip back into it or every time I sit and reread it, I suppose I probably should caveat this really. I haven't really read reread that many books in my life. There's probably only about 10 or 15 that I've gone back to and read more than once. Fever Pitch and The Beach are two that I have done, you know, two or three times because I get something out of them every time. The thing I like about The Beach and it particularly got this the second time, is that the main character is not very nice. And it it really stuck out to me the second time I read it. He's really arrogant. His views on the world are not necessarily what my views on the world would be. But I really liked that about it. It allowed me, particularly from a writing perspective, to understand that it's all right to, to write characters that don't have to be you know every reader's friend and they can be people that we we don't agree with or don't really like as long as the story is strong enough that you want to keep reading and that's what i get with the beach is every time i read it i just want to keep reading it even though i you know i I know the twists and the turns and stuff i I just think it's a great a great book for that because it's interesting when you mentioned there's very few books that you've actually gone back and read again and i always wonder that myself that there are certain books i have read more than once but every time i think about rereading a book then i'll also look at a glance at the pile of books that I've not read yet and I think well I should really because you know life's too short and there's so many books I'm never going to get through all the books I want to read and if I if I kind of start reading a book that I've read before that's time that I could be spent reading in a, in a book I haven't read before. Yeah and I yeah I would agree with that I think that's probably probably why so many sit on the shelf but don't get reread. So the way I sort of have a pattern to the way I read I always do two fiction and then one non-fiction and I did contemplate adding to that after the non-fiction going back and rereading a book that I've already read because there are a few that I would like to revisit just because I think they're when you get so I suppose it's in the same way that you can re-listen to an album or re-listen to you know re-watch a great tv show there's things in there that you might not necessarily have got the first time from them but I suppose there's the flip side of it is that you you don't want to reread it and hate it and then yeah. think oh actually this has spoiled the original memory of it the beach is you know in the same way that I can discuss fever pitch and it's importance and it being that seminal moment of taking me on a reading journey the beach doesn't have that same impact i just remember wanting to go away and living out of, you know live out of a backpack for a little bit and that being the book that really stirred those feelings to say yeah when you go away you'll get a great adventure you won't necessarily end up on a secluded beach in thailand where you know there's this secret community but you there is adventure throughout there beyond the, the sort of suburbs of manchester and the and, uh, and England, it just came along at a really important moment and dipping back into it every now and then or or sitting and rereading it, those feelings don't really go away. It's interesting as well when I was kind of just, I've not read it myself and I was just kind of Googling a wee bit about it and I think 
Nick Hornby, who we're talking about, is is a, a big fan of the book as well. And interestingly, I'm a big fan of uh, Anne Tyler. He's an American novelist who's written a lot of uh, great books. And I came to her novels through Nick Hornby because I kept reading interviews where he, he was citing her as a real influence in terms of his style of writing and how he wanted to write. Do you know that way when you really... Because I really loved Fever Pitch as well. And I think, well, if I really admire him as a writer... If he likes her, then I'll, I'll see what she's about. And, and having read some of her, or quite a few of her books, they're absolutely brilliant. The the copy that I've got with me at the moment of the beach is actually the the, the front cover has got has all the makings of a cult classic, Nick Hornby, on on the yeah. front of it. Yeah, so it, maybe I should just contact Nick Hornby and ask him for all his recommendations, and that'd be my <laughs> reading life sorted. Well, he, he actually wrote a book. I read a book a few years ago. It's, I think it's called something like the Polysyllabic Spree, and I would recommend it. It's a basically he he was writing some. I think it was a magazine. I'm not sure if it was an American magazine called The Believer. So he was writing a series of columns on what he's been reading. So then they collated them all into a book. And oh, okay. It's really it's well worth reading as oh, a Nick Hornby fan, but also as a as a reader. Just before we move on, I was just going to ask you. You mentioned the way you you have a pattern to your reading of two fiction books followed by a non-fiction book. How did how did that develop? How did that come about? Well, the bookshelf has always got about twenty on that need to be read, and okay. I found that if I was reading two non-fiction books in a row, the detail in a lot of them and the things you learn from them, it seemed to be getting diluted. I read a lot of football non-fiction. I'm a big fan of Michael Calvin um, and his and his books, and I was just I was just finding that. If I read more than one nonfiction at a time, some of the the detail from them, I think particularly with nonfiction, spend a lot more time sort of sitting and thinking about the things that you're learning in in the books and almost take them a bit more seriously. I I just found that it was if at the, halfway through whatever the next nonfiction book that I read was, I would I would start to crave fiction a little bit and was struggling. So I just sort of fell into this pattern of I'll do I'll do one non-fiction and then I'll do a fiction and then it, it just it spread from there really and it doesn't always work like this because of what's on the shelf but try and do a crime book a non-crime book and then a, a non-fiction and then go back to crime non-crime but there's so many great crime books that often it, it just becomes two crime books and then uh, two crime books and then a non-fiction so yeah. yeah. You know, it's just yeah. interesting how, because a lot of people, it's just a random something off a shelf or something somebody's recommended, but to actually have that kind of pattern, I was just interested. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's the uh, the Hornby thing again of lists and uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. sort of high fidelity. Let's let's rank everything and and that sort of stuff. Get some order to it. We are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Stephen Keady, writer from Manchester. And Stephen, we're on to your third choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. So this is a book called Finders Keepers by Mark Bowden. Um, it's about a guy called Joey Coyle from Philadelphia, who's a, a down-on-his-luck longshoreman, 28 years old, drug problem, still living with his mother, a bit down on life. I mean, describe it like that, and it sounds like a Springsteen song, doesn't it? Which is great for me, because, you know, that's another obsession. Joey Coyle finds, he's driving down the street one day, and a um, there's an armoured truck in front of him. I think there's a problem with the door, and basically a bag of money falls out uh, in unmarked bills, and it's there's $1.2 million in it. And he has the decision to make about whether he keeps it or doesn't keep it, and then once he makes that decision how life plays out after that. Uh, and the wonderful thing about this book is it's all true. Mark Bowden is a journalist from Philadelphia. He wrote Black Hawk Down and uh, Killing Pablo, amongst numerous other books. 
written a book about the Philadelphia Eagles in the early 90s. And there's a, a great book of his called Dr. Dealer, which is about a dentist who um, was a major cocaine dealer in, in America during the 80s. I have read some of those books. And then obviously you just go through what other what the writers have written as well and came across Finders Keepers. It's a really short book, but it's just a really brilliant story. I struggled with this question a little bit because you, I suppose you really want to, when you're recommending a book to anyone, you really want to know one, who everyone is, what they're into, what type of book they would like. And then if they're into sport, then you, you go one way. If they're into crime, you go another book. I mean, that book, as soon as, I mean, I hadn't, I wasn't, I was unfamiliar with the books, so obviously I was just checking it out, but even just the premise, you know, just people listening to your description of it, I mean, who hasn't, maybe not dreamt of driving behind a, a security van and a, a bag of money drops out, but who hasn't dreamt of maybe stumbling across a hold all that's got money? That's the dream. This is the great thing about the book, really, is that it's not just, it won it, you, everybody has played that game and asked that question. Uh, and actually, when I brought this book up to my wife when we were talking about this podcast, she said, well, well what would we do and how would we go about it? Because it, it doesn't just talk about whether you would keep the book, uh, keep the money or not keep the money. It's around then and, and what the story plays out so well. I don't want to spoil it too much in case people do read it, but it then talks about you have to be the right type of person to make it work. Even if you're the type of person that can that can handle storing that money somewhere and, and making it work, who do you tell? And if you yeah. tell people, who do they tell? And how does that play out? I'm sure that's a question because, you know, like offices up and down the country, I'm sure every week everybody has that conversation with their work colleagues about what would you do if you won the lottery. But then in your head, you're it's kind of similar. You're thinking, well, how do I spend it? Who do I tell? Do I want publicity? And, and before you know it, you've created a whole series of problems or something that's meant to be Exactly. So, but for for Joey in in his scenario, he didn't just win the lottery. He won the lottery in a bag that he had to then keep under his bed. But then Aye. the FBI are looking for it, and the you know the people whose money it originally was are looking for it, and the mob are getting interested, and all of these cast of characters sort of come into his life. And given some of the problems that he's had previously, it makes as as the reader you're reading it and realizing that it isn't just about whether he takes the money or not it's about whether you're physically built and your history and who you are allows you to get through that and 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 whether you are the sort of person that could could make finding that money and keeping it quiet work and um it's the book set it's only set over about a week and it came out of uh, Bowden wrote a series of articles about uh, joey coyle about a year after all all of the story takes place and the book's a sort of extension of those articles, really. Um, but it, it reads like it's written like a novel. So it does read like a novel. And it's it's really fast paced. And it's a really interesting story. Is it never been, because it just struck me again, just reading about it or, or listening to you talking about it. Has, has it not been turned into a movie? It was turned into a film. I'm trying to find it as, as we speak. It was turned into a film with John Cusack, I think in the 90s. Obviously, Joey the person and then Joey the character can come across as sort of not likable. So there was they made a lot of changes to the character to allow the story to be a bit more of a, a Hollywood story, if you like. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually the book is quite a it's quite a dark book in that, you know, Joey's got problems or had problems and this money, although it's an amazing amount of money, doesn't necessarily make his life better but again i don't want to spoil it too much in case people read it but i think the reason that i would recommend it to anyone and i've recommended it to a few people who've come back and really enjoyed it is that it's one of those like it took place in 1981 uh, so it's like the year before i was born it's just a story i don't think people will have heard of 
Yeah. You know, I think it's just a, a fascinating story about a week in this guy's life who gets to experience that question that we all ask ourselves of what would you do if you got a bag of money and it was untraceable? <laughs> yeah. And then it makes you think, well, actually, would I want that? And if I did want that, I've got some planning to do because it doesn't always go perfectly. Do you know what it reminded me of? I don't know if you remember. There was a book that came out, I think it was for kids or young adults by Frank Corfield Boyce called Millions. And then it was turned into a film. It was too... I think young Geordie boys, they find, I think it's, it's a, I don't know if it was a train robbery and there's a bag of money gets thrown off a train and they find it, they stumble upon it in, in a field near their house. And again, it's in, in the book, it's the run up to, to Britain, apparently changing from sterling to the euro. So they've got to get this limited amount of time to try and spend oh, this okay. money and then also try and hide it at the same time. Again, as the police and everybody's looking for this bag of money. It's a really good, quite entertaining book. Yeah, oh no, I'll have to check that out. It's um, it's not a book I've heard of, but um, I mean the the premise of that sort of finding a bag of money and and what would you do with it is is a great novel. And it, yeah. you know, the, sort of from a writer perspective, you'd you'd look at that and go right, what can I do with it? But it turns out you probably don't need to because it's already been done and it's already been actually lived by by a guy in Philadelphia who um and then somebody's already done the work for us and uh, and and written the story for us but it's just it's a great read like i say it's not a, it's not a long book it's really fast paced and it's just a really interesting story I must say this in every single podcast now that it's just, a, a, again, it's just the joy of this is more book recommendations. So again, as soon as I, I started reading about it, I thought that sounds great. I'm going to have to read that. So that's definitely on my ever expanding list of books to, to acquire and read. Well, this is yeah, this is why we can't go back and read old ones, isn't it? Because we exactly. keep getting new ones from this podcast. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, we're kind of we're taking a, a, a very different direction from a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the next question then is that a book that you couldn't be paid to read again? So I know that everybody on this podcast has said this, but this is a really difficult question to answer because you don't want to offend a writer. Then then you go down the route of, I'll pick someone that's dead, but you know you don't want to offend their family either. But the, the book that, that jumped out at me is a bit of a strange premise for a novel, really. So I was a massive fan of the TV show Californication with David Duchovny, particularly the first three series. I don't know if you're familiar with the show, but it's... No, a, I never, never watched it, no. So it's the... <laughs> The story of, um, he plays a writer called Hank Moody, and I think the the name comes from one, the Bukowski character, Henry Chiansky, who was known as Hank. And then Moody, I think, is based around a, a, a writer uh, called Rick Moody, who's from New Jersey, who wrote a book called The Ice Storm, which I believe got turned into a film, I think, in the right. late 90s, which is a, a, a really good read. The the premise of the show is that Duchovny's character is a novelist, he's a drinker, he's a womanizer, but he's also got a former partner and a daughter, and they've they've all moved to LA, and then things have gone wrong in the relationship. But they've moved to LA because he's written this book called God Hates Us All, and um, they're turning the book into a film. The novel is supposed to be quite a dark love story. His writing is compared to sort of Bukowski and people like that with it within the show. The show starts where the the film they've turned it into is a real sort of rom-com type affair with Tom Cruise and uh, Katie Holmes. The Duchovny character is not happy about it, etc. So that's the kind of premise of the TV show. I absolutely love the TV show. The first three series are some of the best TV that I've I've ever enjoyed. But at the end of the first series, they actually released a version of the book from the show God Hates Us All. And they got a guy called, I think you say it, a Jonathan Grottenstein, to write what he thought was the book in the show. 
he only had about three or four months to write it. They were tying it in with the TV show. It was released as Hank Moody. It was uh, with the same cover from the TV show, etc. They released it and I read it and I hated it. And it and it didn't hate it. It's not a bad book. And it, I don't want to have a, a pop at the guy who did write it because it's it's a difficult ask for him. You know, that really the, the guy who made the TV show should have written the novel because it was all the words that were in his head. But it just ruined the TV show for me because mm. I read the book. To me, it is not the book that is in the TV show. It is not the words of this character that we've you know, been, been shown throughout the, the course of the TV series. And every time I've rewatched the TV show, I can only ever hear this novel now. And it just it taints it for me because I mm-hmm. think this is not what I had in mind. I've now been given this novel. I don't like it. It's all right. It's you know, on a, as a standalone novel, it's okay. But it is not what the TV show said we were going to get, and yeah. it completely ruined the TV show for me. So I'd never read it again. Because it's quite a clever. I mean, the idea it's quite a clever premise. I suppose to an extent, cash in on the success of the TV oh, right. show. But but to to actually, as you say replicate a, a novel from the show that obviously every fan's going to buy and i wonder what the reaction from other fans would be because obviously they would have it in their head what they, they thought the novel would be yeah i've never really looked into it to be honest i think a, a friend of mine i mean i just gave it him back and said i'm done with this i don't want to know any more <laughs> about it i mean it's you know it's a marketer's dream isn't it to have a spin-off novel from the tv show but it, it just in my opinion it wasn't done very well it didn't represent what the show was representing about what this book should be. And actually, really looking back, I should have just completely ignored it because my own imagination allowed me to have what I thought this book was. The TV show hints at, at little bits, and we should have just left it at that, really. And actually, yeah. your curiosity would have you would have eventually read it anyway. Yes. Interesting then that it then affects how you view the TV show again. Yeah, it's it's just a strange one because every time the book gets mentioned and they talk about, you know, other characters reference how good this book was, you can't help but go back to the novel that you've read and go, but it's not that good. Yeah, you're and, shouting at the telly at that point. Yeah, yeah basically, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you have to, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a 38-year-old man, I should be able to separate the two. And really, it's my own fault for getting so angry about it. But it's just a book I would never read again because it it isn't what it's supposed to be in my own mind. And that's a shame because it the guy who wrote it could have written a great book and has written it. You know, it's it's not a bad story and it's not a bad novel. It's just not what it's advertised. So for me, it's uh, one I'd never read again. Right, that's that's fairly definitive. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move on to the the final questions, because one thing I was again I was wanting to ask you. In the course of the conversation, music has come up a few times. Obviously, it's a it's a big part of of your life and your interests. And on your Twitter feed, you, you mentioned the fact that you and, and one of your friends are about to start a, a music website called A Albums. What exactly is that going to be involved? So the premise of it is really simple. We just want people to come onto the website or uh, to contact us, and we want to create a site that has just all these sort of snapshots of people's lives about eight albums that are important to them and why the rules are really simple you can have eight albums by the same artist you can have greatest hits and they don't have to be your favorite albums of all time they can in the the same way that you know this podcast is the books don't have to be your favorite ones of all time but but they're important at a certain moment in time the the premise of the website is to just sort of capture those albums that mean something to someone and, and why and why that is. We're we're actually ready to launch, but we've decided against it with the current world climate because we, we just feel like now's not the right time to be pushing something new. Yeah. Um so we're we're just waiting until all this is over before we actually launch it. 
in the same way with all these things, books and films and, and music, they all tie in, don't they? And they, they all play play a part in our lives that sometimes you can't articulate the reason why for, but it just, you know, you just get a feeling and it just and it just provides you with, with something different and sometimes it takes you on a different path. And we, we just wanted to capture that. So they're, they're also the albums that we're not looking for, you know, people to be, oh, these are the coolest albums I own or this is what other people think are cool. So my friend Matt, who I'm doing the thing with, when when we originally talked about it, one of his albums was the PJ and Duncan album by Anton Deck. And it's not because he's listened to it now or he even likes it. It's because it was the first album he ever bought with his own money. As long as he's happy with you revealing that, it's, well, it's like the world. He's got no choice now, has he? It's, <laughs> That that's the premise of it. It's it's just to capture those albums that are important to people and why. And I think the album is, you know, particularly going back, my musical life comes really from the nineties. When I was a teenager, I didn't own that many albums because I couldn't afford to own that many albums. So you would buy an album and that would be all you would listen to for, you know, three or four months before your pocket money allowed you to go and buy a new one. So they just albums just play a really important part in in my life and you know numerous other people's lives and we just felt we wanted to try and tell some let people tell some of those stories and have those stories out there for people to read so i think we've got about 15 people so far who are who have taken part and we hope that many more will so feel free to to join us and, and get involved well, you know, it's funny because it's a bit like when I'm asking people to choose a few of their, their, their favourite books. And as you say, it's the same thing with music. It's songs and albums that of a certain time in a certain period in your life for a certain reason still mean something to you. As you say, it doesn't have to be the coolest. I've never had the coolest music taste anyway, so I'm, I'm OK in that, that regard. But I, I wonder as well, just now, obviously you kind of delayed the, the launch of it. But, you know, I think it's the sort of thing that you see on on social media, a lot of people looking at different lists, looking back, and probably it's a time where people will reflect on these things because they've got that time to then look back to, you know, what was maybe the first album they got or their album when they were the first time they were in love or whatever, you know. It's a really, I think it's a really interesting premise. Some of the stories we've had so far have been really, really interesting. People who love albums that you love, but then you realise that they love them for different reasons or they came along in, in different times. Um, the album that keeps coming up, you know, no spoilers for the website, but Rumours by Fleetwood Mac seems to be right. the one that everybody, either from when you were a child and it was on a tape in your, in your car when uh, your parents were playing it through to, you know, for myself, particularly with that album, I didn't discover it until I was in my mid-twenties and I was away with my wife on our first wedding anniversary in the apartment we were staying in in Paris, had a copy of it and I'd never heard it and we put it on and it was just blown away by it. So it's... That all of these stories, even when the same album comes up, they, they mean different things to different people, and we're, we're just trying to capture that. You'll need to keep us uh, up to date when that launches, because I think it's a great idea. Well, oh, thank you. Well, as soon as you press stop on this record, I'm going to mind you about doing it, so um, <laughs> <laughs> you need to start getting your pen out and get your list ready. So. Well, we are on to the last question, and that is either the book you're currently reading or the book you've you've just finished reading. I've gone with the one that I've just finished reading, uh, which is The Border by Don Winslow, which brings us sort of full circle to where we started, really, with, with Don Winslow. I, I should actually give a shout out to the book that I am reading, which is uh, Dark Pines by uh, Will Dean, a new sort of series of Scandinavian Will's a, an English guy who's moved to the forest in Sweden and built himself a house out uh, in the forest and, and writes um, writes books about a Swedish journalist and I'm reading the first in the series. Um, I know the series is really well thought of uh, amongst readers on Twitter. It's a really, the, the first book, Dark Pines, I'm really enjoying. But the, the book I read 
previously is The Border by Don Winslow, and it's um, the third book in, in the Cartel trilogy. So that it started in um, 2005 with The Power of the Dog, which was actually the first Winslow book that I read. Um, and then it was followed up, I think, in 2012 by The Cartel and is a, again a really really good book and so the and this is the the final piece of that trilogy so the trilogy is about a guy um called art keller who is a dea agent and it's his story of him chasing a mexican drug lord called adnan barrera and the first two books are absolutely brilliant pieces of crime fiction they're, they're very dark they're not for everyone there's some really brutal stuff that goes on in them um, a lot of which I believe is based on real things that have happened. Winslow is a um, an expert on the border and what and what goes on between the two countries. But the book or the books tell the story of the U.S. war on drugs across 40 or 50 years across the three books. The border, the final one, which I've just finished, it tells the story really of what's going on in the world at the moment. And I, I promise not to spoil this for you because I know <clears> you've not read it. Yes, um, I, I was just but, about to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually poised, just ready to stop recording. If you, <laughs> no problem. If we just cut out like um, the end of a particular TV show, which I won't name to spoil for anyone else either, you'll know that I've spoiled the book for for Paul. The third book, there's a character in it which is is very much a, a Donald Trump character that's running for the U.S. presidency, and his a son-in-law character, which is is not unlike the uh, real-life son-in-law that is involved in the U.S. administration at the moment. And the the book just talks about and and deals with the fallout of the drug war, where the money goes from the drug lords and how it flows into America. And then the impact that that has on everyday Americans. Uh, one of the characters in it is, a, is an immigrant boy and you see his journey from leaving his home country and making the journey to America and how that plays out. And again, I'm trying not to spoil it, but it's just a wonderful, wonderful piece of crime fiction. I'd read The Power of the Dog and The Cartel, and I often think, don't do another one, because we don't need another one. The story is perfect as it is, leave it. And when The Border was announced, I thought, oh, I hope he can I hope he can match the other two. And for me, he's not only matched it, he's exceeded them. That's good to hear, because it was a previous podcast guest, Alison McConnell, who I know you've been corresponding with via Twitter, who recommended yes. The Power of the Dog to me. And that book and The, and, uh, the Cartel, it's very rare, I think, you get a book which genuinely is one of those books you could say you couldn't put it down. But from the moment I started reading The Power of the Dog, I just wanted to devour it because I thought it just absolutely blew me away. You hear, I've often heard people say that crime fiction can, can tell us a lot about society. And I've heard that phrase sort of thrown around quite a bit. And I've often thought, really, does it? Or is it just about another murder in Sweden, you know, or, or whatever, <laughs> um, which is fine. You know, there's lots of great crime novels that are, are just crime novels that are not really telling us about, about society. But these three books finishing with the border, I absolutely get what people mean now. And I think this is the best example I've ever read of crime novels telling us about the world and what goes on in it. And the, the border is just a great way for him to finish this this series of books. So I'm really intrigued to see what he's going to do next because he's really captured this American problem. What is talked about in the books is that it is an American problem. You know, the, the reason that the drugs are going into America is because people are using them in America. It's a, it's a seller's market in that way. And it really highlights that, that the flow of drugs into the country is because there, there's a requirement for them there. 
but it really tells the human stories behind that and there's no judgment within it and the the border is a fantastic book at the end of a fantastic trilogy I mean, I'm really excited to, to read The Border because, I, as I say, I think as a trilogy, I, and I agree with you, like sometimes, you know, even sometimes for a follow-up book, if you love one book, when somebody follows it up, you're always anxious that it lives up to expectations. And, and when it gets to the, the third part of a trilogy, I think that the pressure on the writer becomes even more so. So I'm glad to hear that Don Winslow has delivered big style with that. Yeah, he's very good, though. You know, if anyone was going to do it, it was going to be Don Winslow because he, yeah. uh, he is a superb writer. And we're not just saying that because he obviously now follows the read all about it Twitter feed. And no, 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 we're yeah. not. No, uh, but you know, if if he's listening, then uh, <laughs> I'm sure he is. Then he'll uh, hopefully take a moment to smile to know that he's got a, f- a, a few fans that uh, are pleased with the work he's doing. We're almost at the the end of the podcast, but I was just going to ask you. I said right at the very start, the introduction, you've already written one novel, you've finished another novel, and, and you now want to try and find an agent to get that published and. Are you now working on something else as well, or are you just kind of focused on trying to get this second novel out into the world? So I never, I never stop working on something. There's always an idea or you know a word document that's got something on. And I said before that actually I don't write crime, but the current thing I'm working on is a. I do have a private detective story that I have been sort of making notes on for a few months and got about six chapters done. Without going into too much detail of it, it's the premise of a a guy that goes missing on his stag do and then the private detective being brought in to try and help find out what happened to him. But the the sort of hook of the story, if you like, is that the private detective, the guy that's gone missing, is the son of his ex-wife and it's the, the, the son that she had with the man that she left the private detective for. Right. So there's a, there's a real sort of, you know, fa- family connection and a lot of bringing up of the past that goes on and the the detective having to deal with you know this relationship that ended 20 odd years ago sort of walking back into his office and and dumping this case on his desk so that's the premise at the moment but maybe you could delete that bit so nobody steals the idea <laughs> but yeah there's it was all... funny because because a lot of writers don't really like talking about what they're working on not 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 necessarily because they think somebody else is is going to steal the idea but it's just it's almost like i know one of the previous guests katrina child she just wanted to jinx it you know, if, if talking too much about something. I don't really mind, to be honest. I always find it quite exciting to um, to, to talk about the, the kind of ideas and things. So, I mean, to, to go all the way back to the beginning and Fever Pitch, what's always been interesting to me is that even before I was a reader, I always knew that I wanted to write. And the two were very separate. You know, I didn't need to be a reader to, to know that I wanted to write stories. And that's never changed, really. Obviously, I've become a better writer because I'm a reader, but I've always wanted to, you know, without sounding like the start of Goodfellas, you know, ever since I can remember, I've always wanted to be a writer. And, <laughs> and, and that's always that's always been there. But yeah, there, there is something that I'm working on that at the moment. Um, it doesn't have a, have a working title or anything like that. It's just known as the private detective thing at the moment. But So in terms of, you know, if the fact that you, you say you always wanted to be a writer, so that must have been when you finished your first novel, suburb and got that published that must have been a real thrill to yeah so so suburb, i actually went down the um the indie publishing route with suburb and actually the the timing of this is that it's been out on kindle for quite a while and um you know it's a sort of semi-decent reviews and you know, people the feedback that i've got from it is really good but i've got two young kids so my eldest is eight youngest is five and then um, life kind of got in the way a little bit of, of trying to promote that properly etc so i've recently just decided that I'm going to get paperback copies of it and I'm going to make a bit more of a go of suburbs so there'll, there'll kind of be a, 
a repush of suburb if you like to to try and get it out there again um so that's probably about a month away from happening but then obviously in the time of having the, having the two kids i've also written running and jumping and running and jumping is 120,000 words it's set between beijing 2008 and um rio 2016 the research that was involved in it was really really time consuming i was very lucky to have one of my friends was um very high up in British water polo during the London 2012 games. So I was able to get research through through conversations with her and, and get some real insight and detail as to, to what behind the scenes in, in that world was like. But I made a real determination at the beginning that when I wrote Running and Jumping, so the, the story is about two long jumpers and their rivalry. And I made a real decision at the beginning of it that when that book was finished, if I handed it to a long jumper and said, read this, they would come back and say, this is exactly what it's like. And that was the only requirement for the book is that when when somebody reads it, they come back and say, I was in that world and that is what it's like. Um, and I've had that feedback from a long jumper that I've worked with and interviewed and, and actually trained with as part of the, uh, the research for the book. Um, and I can tell you, the, I did one session and it lasted three hours and I couldn't walk for three days. Uh, and I said to him afterwards, how often would you do that session? And he said, probably three or four times a week. And I was absolutely broken from it. It's a, you're it's best a, expecting to write a bit long jumping. Yes, I know. But you've got to feel like you know what you're talking about <laughs> a little bit, um, you know, to, to try and live it. But also my, my friend who was, um, like I say, was a, she was actually at Beijing as well, but had a, had a more prominent role in the, in the London 2012 games she finished reading what was not far off the final draft about about six weeks ago and she said absolutely it's absolutely spot on for somebody who was there it reads like it should and you know if no one else reads it then the feedback that i got from that friend will will uh, will stand with me for a long time hopefully other people will read it but um, well i'm hoping obviously if any publishers or agents are listening to this then they can get in touch with me and i'll put them in touch with you and oh, that'd be phenomenal yeah that'd be great thank you you never know how these things come about, so we'll keep our fingers crossed for you. Oh, thank you very much. Cheers. Sadly, we are almost out of time, Stephen. Um, if anybody wants to to check out Stephen's book recommendations or even the book that uh, he's telling you never to read again, uh, you go into my website, www.paulcuddehy.com, and each of the guests in the podcast has their own individual page where I've listed all the books that we've been talking about. But out of uh, some Twitter conversations, it's been great to have you on the podcast, Stephen. It's been really entertaining and, and more book recommendations for me, as always. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at PaulCuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.